Part 20 of Works of Sallust. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Works of Gaius Salustius Crispus. Translated by Alfred W. Pollard. Eugurthine War, Part 11. While this affair was in progress, the quaestor, Lucius Sulla, entered the camp with a large force of cavalry, which he had been left behind at Rome to levy from Latium and the Allies. Our subject thus brings this remarkable man to our notice, and it, therefore, seems fitting briefly to describe his character and accomplishments, as we shall have no other opportunity of speaking on Sulla, and Lucius Sassena, who has composed the best and most painstaking treatise of any writer on this subject, seems to me hardly to have spoken his mind with freedom. Sulla, then, was nobly born, of a patrician house and a family which the indolence of his ancestors had reduced to obscurity. He was well versed in the literatures of Greece and Rome as the most learned, a man of great aspiration, eager for pleasure, yet more eager for fame, luxurious in his leisure, yet never suffering pleasure to withdraw him from his duties except that he might have better consulted his honor in his married life. He was eloquent, shrewd, and an obliging friend, with quite incredible skill in feigning and concealment, and of great generosity in many matters, especially with regard to money. Before his triumph in the Civil War, though the most fortunate of men, his luck never surpassed his energy, and many doubted whether he could more rightly be called the fortunate or the brave. As to his subsequent conduct, I do not know whether its narration would be a more shameful or a more disgusting task. When, as narrated above, he arrived with the cavalry in Marius's camp in Africa, Sulla was quite ignorant and unpractised in war. In a short time, however, he became the most skillful soldier in the army. He addressed the men with kindness, granted many favors, both by request and of his own accord, and was unwilling to receive those offered by others though he returned these more readily than he did his loans. For his own part, he never sought repayment, but rather was anxious to increase the number of his debtors. He would talk, both gravely and gaily, with the humblest, frequently visited the men at their work, on the march and on guard, and all the time refrained from the vice of the meanly ambitious, and never injured the character of the consul or any man of honor. He contented himself with allowing none to excel him in the council or action, and with himself outstripped most competitors. By these services and accomplishments he quickly endeared himself to Marius and the soldiers. Jugurtha had lost the town of Capsa and many other fortified important places, and with them great treasures. He now sent messengers to Bacchus, bidding him lead his forces into Numidia with all speed, as the time for battle had arrived. Learning that the king was hesitating, and pondering in doubt on the respective advantages of peace and war, he again, as he had done before, bribed those about him, while, to the Mauritania, himself he promised a third part of Numidia to be surrendered on the expulsion of the Romans from Africa, or the conclusion of a peace, which should leave his dominions intact. Bacchus was enticed by the bribe, and joined Jugurtha with a great host. The two kings united their armies, and attacked Marius, who was already setting out for his winter quarter, when hardly a tenth part of the day was left, thinking that the night, which was already falling, would protect them if worsted, 
while if victorious their knowledge of the country would prevent its hampering them. The Romans, on the other hand, they thought, would in either event find their difficulties increased in the darkness. The consul had no sooner been warned from many quarters of the approach of the enemy than the enemy himself was upon him, and before the army could be marshaled or collect its baggage, indeed, before it could receive any signal or command, the Mauritanian and Gaetulian cavalry, in no line or order of battle, but in troops, just as chance had thrown them together, charged down upon our men. These were confused with the suddenness of the alarm, but nevertheless each remembered his courage, and either seized on his armor, or sheltered from the enemy others so engaged. Some mounted their horses and advanced against the enemy, and the fight assumed the character rather of a contest with brigands than a battle. Foot and horse were mingled together without standards or ranks, slaughtering others and being themselves cut down. Many who were fighting desperately against the foe in front found themselves beset in the rear. Neither valor nor armor gave any real security. Our men were outnumbered by their enemy and surrounded on every side. At last the Romans, whose knowledge as a body of war was increased by the present mixture of veterans and recruits, formed in rings as chance or the nature of the ground threw them together, and being in this way sheltered and in good order on every side, beat off the enemy's attack. Though beset by such a calamity, Marius was neither downcast nor inclined to despond. At the head of his own troop, which he formed of brave soldiers rather than of personal friends, he ranged over the field, at one moment helped some hard-pressed Romans, at the next charged into the thickest of his foe. He thought for his soldiers he showed by his valor, for in the general confusion he could give them no commands. The day was now spent, and the barbarians relaxed no effort, but rather pressed on more vigorously, believing, as the kings had told them, that the night was in their favor. At this point Marius took the best course the situation allowed, and in order to provide his men with a refuge, seized on two neighboring hills, the one of which, though too small for a camp, possessed a bountiful spring of water, while the other was suited to his purpose, being for the most part lofty and steep, and thus requiring little entrenching. Ordering Sulla to bivouac near the spring with his cavalry, he himself gradually concentrated his scattered troops, whose confusion was fully equaled by that of the enemy, and led the whole force at a rapid pace to the hill. The difficult nature of the ground compelled the kings to desist from the battle. They did not, however, permit their men to retire at any distance, but encamped in loose order with their hosts surrounding the two hills. The barbarians then lit numerous fires, and throughout the greater part of the night rejoiced, according to their custom, with vaunts and shouts. Even their leaders grew insolent and behaved themselves as conquerors, merely because they had not fled. The Romans, who were themselves in darkness and on higher ground, could easily watch their behavior, and were greatly cheered by it. Marius, most of all, was encouraged by the inexperience the enemy betrayed, and ordered perfect silence to be kept, forbidding even the ordinary calls to be sounded at the different watches. As daylight approached, and the enemy, already wearied out, had been now for some little while overpowered by sleep, he suddenly ordered the watches, and with them the trumpeters of the cohorts, squadrons, and legions, all simultaneously to sound an alarm, and the soldiers to raise a shout and sally forth from the gates. The Mauritanians and Gaetulians, suddenly roused by unfamiliar and terrifying din, 
could neither flee nor seize their arms, nor in fact take any action or measures for defense. To such an extent had the din and outcry, the absence of help, and the onset of our men, the confusion and panic, caused them all to be seized as with a kind of madness. To conclude, the whole army fled in utter rout. Many arms and ensigns of war were captured, and more of the enemy were killed in this battle than in all those that preceded it. Sleep, in an unwanted panic, hampered their flight. Marius now resumed his march to his quarters for the winter, which he had determined to pass in the seaports for the sake of provisions. His victory made him neither remiss nor arrogant, and, as if in the presence of the enemy, he marched with his army in a hollow square. Sulla, with the cavalry, was on the extreme right. On the left was Aulus Manlius, with the slingers and bowmen, in charge also of the Ligurian cohorts. Tribunes, with companies of light troops, were posted in the van and rear, while deserters, the men least valued and best acquainted with the country, spied out the enemy's line of march. At the same time the consul looked to every point himself, as if none other had charge of it, visited all the men, and distributed praise and blame as they severally deserved. He compelled the soldiers to be armed and on the alert like himself, fortified the camp with the same care he displayed on the march, drafted cohorts from the different legions to keep guard at the gates, and cavalry from the auxiliary forces to patrol before the camp, posted other troops on the rampart. The watches he went round of in person, not so much from any mistrust as to the fulfillment of his orders, as from the desire to increase the willingness of his soldiers, by showing them that their general shared equally in their toil. In fact, both at this and at other periods of the Eugurthian War, Marius maintained discipline, rather by appealing to his men's sense of honor than by punishments. This conduct many traced to his desire for popularity, while some thought that he had been, from boyhood, so inured to hardship and other miseries, as they were mostly accounted, that he now regarded them as pleasures. Be this as it may, the public interest was well and honorably served, as under the most tyrannical of commanders. At last, on the fourth day, not far from Serta, the scouts from all quarters presented themselves in haste, a certain sign that the enemy was at hand. Pouring in as they did from every side, and with all the same intelligence, they rendered it impossible for the consul to decide how to draw up his army for the battle. He therefore made no change in his formation, but stood his ground prepared for all emergencies. He thus balked Jugurtha, who had divided his forces into four, under the idea that one or other of them must in any case take the enemy in the rear. Meanwhile, Sulla, who was the first to be attacked, cheered on his men, and at the head of the troop, formed in the closest order, he charged the enemy in person. While the rest of his troops kept their position, sheltering themselves from the javelins darted from a distance, and cutting down any of the enemy who attacked them at closer quarters. While the cavalry was thus engaged, Bacchus, with the infantry whom his son, Volux had brought up, and who, owing to delay in the march, had been absent from the former battle, charged his Roman rear. Marius at this moment was occupied in the front, as there Jugurtha was attacking with the strongest division. The Numidian now learnt that Bacchus had arrived, and with a few attendants wheeled round, unnoticed to the infantry. There he shouted in Latin, a tongue which he had learned to speak at Numantia, that our soldiers were fighting in vain, as a moment before he had slain Marius with his own hand, at the same time displaying a dripping sword, which in the course of battle 
he had stained gallantly enough with the blood of our infantry. On hearing his words, our men were panic-stricken, though rather by the hideousness of such a calamity than from belief in the news. The barbarians at once plucked up their courage, and pressed the frightened Romans more fiercely. They had nearly reduced them to flight, when Sulla returned from crushing the enemy against whom he had ridden, and charged the Mauritanians on their flank. Balkis rode off immediately, but Jugurtha, in his eagerness to uphold his men, and to cling to the victory he had so nearly won, was hemmed in by the cavalry, and when all, both to his right and left, had been cut down, eluded the enemy's javelins, and broke alone through their mists. Meanwhile Marius, after routing the cavalry, hastened to the assistance of his comrades, of whose straits he had just been informed. This completed the rout of the enemy. A dreadful scene then ensued in the open plains. There was flight and pursuit, and slaughter and capture. Horses and riders dashed to the earth, and many a wounded man, with no strength to fly, or patience to lie still, struggling to rise, and forthwith fainting back. As far as the eye could reach, the whole country was strewn with weapons, armor, and corpses, and between them appeared the blood-stained earth. Henceforth, indisputably victorious, the consul. The consul now made his way to Serta, whither from the outset he had directed his march. To this place, five days after the second defeat of the barbarians, came ambassadors from Bacchus, entreating Marius in the king's name to send him two trusty envoys, as he wished to confer with both of them on his own position and on the interests of the Roman people. Marius immediately ordered Lucius Sulla and Aulus Manlius to proceed to the king, and they, although they had come by request, nevertheless determined to address the king in order to alter his disposition if hostile, or if they found him desirous of peace, to further kindle his eagerness. Accordingly, Sulla, to whose eloquence, not to his years, Manlius gave way, spoke briefly to the following effect. We greatly rejoice, King Bacchus, that heaven has warned a man of your parts at least to prefer peace to war, and by avoiding the pollution of your own nobility by association with the utter vileness of Jugurtha, to release us from the cruel necessity of bringing your mistake and his wickedness to a common punishment. From the very beginning of their empire, the Roman people has thought it better to seek friends than slaves, and has deemed it safer to rule by good will rather than compulsion. To yourself, nothing can be more convenient than our friendship. In the first place, our distance from you will make collusions almost impossible, while our good will will be as effectual as were we your neighbors. In the second, we have subjects in abundance. Of friends, neither we nor any that have ever lived have had enough. Would that you have seen the wisdom of this course from the beginning. Had you done so, you would by this time assuredly have received more favors from the Roman people than, as it is, you have suffered ills. Fortune, however, is ruler over all, and she, it seems, has seen fit that you should experience both our power and our good will. Now, therefore, that you have her permission, hasten and advance on the road you have entered. You have in your power many means of outweighing your heirs by your services. Let this thought sink into your breast, that the Roman people was never outdone in a contest of kindness. Its power in real war you have learnt for yourself. To this speech, Bacchus made a peaceful and courteous reply, 
and at the same time touched briefly on his offense. He had taken up arms, he said, in no hostile spirit, before the defense of his kingdom, a part of Numidia, whence, as he contended, he had forcibly expelled Jugurtha, had, according to the laws of war, become his own, and it was impossible for him to allow Marius to lay it waste. He alluded also to the refusal of alliance when he had previously sent an ambassador to Rome, but expressed a wish to bury the past, and, for the present, if he had Marius's permission, to send an ambassador to the Senate. Leave was granted, but Jugurtha had learnt of the embassy of Sulla and Manlius, and, fearing the very projects which were actually on foot, had bribed the friends of Bacchus, and these now led the barbarian to alter his resolve. End of Jugurthine War, Part 11